0: listeners, my name is Arno and I'm the founder of Revelator Studio. Welcome to the Truth is Golden Podcast. This show is about creative minds and the secret sauce behind their success. It is for people who are interested to learn about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In this episode I'm talking to Matthew Rosenberg, founder and principal of Mrad, a Los Angeles-based architecture studio. We talked about growing up in the Canadian prairies, creativity and how he's setting out to forever change the architectural practice. Where did you grow up? Saskatoon, so Saskatchewan. Yeah. And what were you like as a kid? <laughs>
1: I was uh, I was a round, pudgy child that was fed by my Jewish grandmother probably five too many times per day and very shy and definitely was not outgoing. I am perhaps the complete opposite today. So
0: what would you attribute that
1: transformation to? It's interesting. I think mostly my very close friends who I grew up with definitely pulled me out of my shell growing up in Saskatoon. There's a lot, of, you sort of grow up in a cul-de-sac and you have very tight-knit relationships with a few people. And, and I had very strict parents, but for a good reason, and I thank them for that now. But I had friends who also pulled me out of that and tried to show me sort of some rebellion side. At the time it seemed rebellious, now it doesn't seem so bad. but. Uh, there was, you know, there was actually a trigger moment when I came out of my shell, which was on the March of the Living in in Israel and Poland, where you travel and see some of the concentration camps. So about a two to three week trip. And I went when I was probably 14 or 15. And there was that, that was sort of the moment when I think my personality shifted almost 180 degrees. When I came back, I, there was a few months when I was almost meditative and really didn't talk to many people and was just sort of very thoughtful about that trip. And after that, I came out of it and realized that there was, I think, uh, much more I could do if I was a bit of a different personality and outgoing and spoken. And, and that was, it was a very interesting juncture in my life that I can actually pinpoint. I can't in my life, when things change,
0: but now I can. So going back to um, your family, you briefly mentioned your Jewish grandmother. What kind of family did you grow up in?
1: Uh, very close one. My parents uh, are doctors, and my sister is now an artist. So it's funny we both sort of ended up in the art world, I guess. But <laughs> they were, you know, a very uh, I would say careful and respectful and I had a very good upbringing and sort of if you look at it from the outside it looks like a the perfect
0: modular family in a sense. What do you mean by modular family? Just if you
1: were to describe or, or define what perfect family might look like, it sort of looked like that. Obviously it wasn't, but I, I you know you can hear it from other people that it looks like that way from the outside mm-hmm. even though everyone has their you know issues and problems but I had a very secure, very safe, very supportive bringing by my parents and my sister and everybody took care of everyone and they still did.
0: So what did you want to be growing up?
1: I always wanted to be an architect, actually. Either that or a lawyer or a chef. And the architecture thing just kind of worked out and I still incorporate food into every day of my life. I love cooking. Uh, I actually do still love the idea of law and negotiation and language. So I incorporate that too. So I was sort of able to use architecture to incorporate everything I thought I would do.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's jump into a slightly different topic. And I want to talk about creativity. Um, What does that mean to you? Creative and being creative and the creative process. Doing something in a different way than it's been done in the past. And so that seems to transpire in the way you describe your business and the way you do business. Uh, can you talk a little more about that? Sure. I mean, at every, at every point, I try to understand
1: how things have been done and look at other industries and look at what's been successful at certain junctures in that business and learn from that so we can then copy it. But more importantly, Change it. So, if there's moments that were successful, we try to absorb those. Depending on what it is, but really, this is sort of a, a umbrella stance on, on business: is that if you can understand within multiple industries what's been successful, and then realize that across those different industries, there's there's similarities in what works. Right, businesses are businesses, whether it's medicine, law, whatever it is. There's underlying factors that help with success, right? Humans are humans, and while people have different uh, emotions and different desires and things that they like or don't like, there is, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about empathy. There's this underlying thing within human behavior that shows similarities across whatever you're talking about or whatever you're doing. And so, we try to understand what those are across multiple disciplines so that we can then better understand what might work in architecture, which really actually absorbs most disciplines anyway. And once we understand that, if we bring all those other disciplines and those success factors, my proposition is that probably we can create a business through architecture that will be much more successful in that sense. And by shifting those things according to what we need, architecture and in our business model we can create a whole new business model architecture that really doesn't exist.
0: So can you describe that business model?
1: Yeah I mean the principle is to revolutionize the industry of architecture which uh, is really backed on the idea of extending the scope of the architect or the designer. So there's architecture at its core which is design and many other things but in the past through several cycles of history, the architect used to take on much more. They used to be the builder, they used to be the trade, they used to be the drawer, they used to be the designer, all of this stuff. And lately that's really been broken down and the architect has released a lot of the onus and a lot of responsibility, partly because of legal issues and many other concerns that have come up. the business model at Emra is essentially to extend the scope of the architect to fix the industry. So before architecture, we have development essentially, right? We have communities and cities that are developed by people who aren't actually related to design, usually, as we know them as developers. And so we've actually encompassed that portion of architecture under our umbrella. So we we try to research and understand cities, neighborhoods, communities from the past, currently how they're operating, and try to predict what future cities might look like in a successful tech-oriented way. And that has to come from understanding new technologies that come and new disciplines that are going to come out of these technologies. And sort of back in that on a design and research stance, we then look at areas, especially in Los Angeles now, because we're based here, at assembling properties, underdeveloped properties, areas we think could use better design, better program mixes. And we're actually now putting our money where our mouth is and tying up these properties and assembling contiguous properties for development. And then we bring in the equity, we bring in the development partner. Okay, so we're actually jumping ahead of the developer and sourcing where these developments are gonna happen. And this is a huge thing for architecture. I mean, architects just don't do this. If any architect has done this, which they have, they leave architecture because there's more money in the development side, right? There's more risk, more money. And so our point is still to come back to the architecture. So we have pre-architecture, which is essentially the development and research. We have architecture, which is still our core business right now, which I think we do very well. And then there's post architecture. So the post architecture is looking at what happens after the architecture which is essentially we have all the interior design, we have product design, we have sales, marketing, branding. All of these projects are then handed off to brokers who don't really know what the project is about because they didn't spend two years designing it. We already have all the assets. We've already spent two years invested in a project. We know more about it than anyone else ever will. And so what we're doing now is we're designing everything that goes into that building. Candles, scents, everything that creates an experience for someone. And what that does is it creates a brand and it creates a a higher level of memory sense. So that you then go into an MRAB building and you understand it because every touch, smell, every sense has been tracked and hit right so we're tapping into all of it which then taps into your memory which then traps it taps into brand recognition so on that note then we look at marketing and sales so we want to communicate the narrative of the project to the end user and we want to understand who that end user is and we want to understand how they're using our buildings so the next step in all this is to figure out a technology that's going to be able to allow people to easily provide us that information is the building working what would they like changed how can we adjust the building how can we adjust the temperature should it smell differently should it operate differently and so looking at sort of an extended timeline now of architecture it's essentially pre-architecture architecture architecture and post-architecture and by extending the scope of the architect we're creating many more verticals throughout the business right verticals ultimately will mean revenue sources,
0: which means a much more substantiated and sustainable business. And that's a very interesting approach. Um, What came up to my mind when you were talking about the developer approach is that there's been people who've been doing the design and development of business model, but I can't think of anyone who's been doing the post part, which is the experience and getting feedback from the end users. So that's very interesting. But if you look at companies like Optima or uh, Jonathan Siegel in San Diego, they've been doing that kind of developer designer work. So how is yours different from that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, Jonathan Siegel, I also think Shaw has done a very good job of mm-hmm. it. Uh, BRK Ingalls has now brought on the engineering group, which will be another part of our business, bringing all, basically, our goal is to create a much more efficient industry. Cause right now it's the inefficiencies that are breaking the entire business of architects. I mean, they don't have a chance the way it's operating right now. So shop architects has done a bit of the development side for sure. Uh, they've now veered more into the engineering, right? Shop is essentially, they call themselves architects, but they're 75, 80% engineers, mm-hmm. which is great. They're doing a great job. They do amazing projects for sure. I think the they're missing the experience and the brand recognition still. I also think they're not as focused on understanding cities and future cities and tapping into better developments. Our goal is to come from a place of, of research to understand what developments and program mixes can actually create cities of the future. And I don't think anyone's actually doing that from the development side. I tell you, there's barely any developers doing it. We're, in touch with a couple of them who are bringing the equity to some of our early development deals. But not many people would believe in the kind of program that we're proposing for a for big development we're putting together. I mean, it's essentially creating a mini New York in Los Angeles. And to convince a developer when there's no comps for that in Los Angeles to throw $100 million at a land purchase is is not easy, but we're doing it. And we're doing it because of research backed by multiple cities around the world and history on that thing and the future trends of Los Angeles.
0: So am I correct in saying that the uniqueness of what you do is really the overarching approach pre-architecture and post-architecture? Yep, that's exactly it.
1: It's extending the scope of the architect okay. throughout the whole process.
0: And so how did you come up with this uh, new way of working? How did that come to you?
1: Partly out of necessity, I had no desire to try to fight for 50 years to see if we could make it as an architecture studio. And, you know, when I first started, I refused to design crappy buildings because that's what developers told me to design. Because that's what they've made a bit of money off of. And we've now built our architecture and our design model that pushes boundaries across design like you've never seen before. And we're doing it with vetted developers. I mean, our client list is quite phenomenal, actually. And we've been particular about that. So the, I think the, the it's not so much where the idea came from. It's the stubbornness at which the idea prevails. Does
0: that make sense? It does. I can absolutely relate to that. And that's a very interesting approach. And so from what I understand, you say there's nobody else that's doing that. There's, there's be... really not. I
1: wish there was because I keep looking for someone to copy mm-hmm. ideas from. But uh, extending the scope this far on both ends it doesn't exist.
0: Well, I've heard um, Joshua Prince-Ramus a few years ago talking about that the architect going back to the master builder role. Yeah. But he never talked about the posts part that you speak of. So there's still something that would be missing compared to what you're doing.
1: We're copying the master builder role. I'm not Mm -hmm. pretending we're making that part up. Mm -hmm. We're absorbing that. but Mm -hmm. then we're extending that so that we can control everyone's experience. So that they can have a heightened experience through our spaces, buildings, parks, whatever it
0: may be. And so if I understand correctly, you don't have too many build projects so far.
1: We do not. So how do
0: you get the information you need for the the next project you're going to build to design that experience? So
1: that's what's coming, right? Real estate and architecture is slow. So the last part of this puzzle is getting the feedback, which is when I mentioned we have to start developing some technology. So it's not so much a piece of paper knocking on someone's door and trying to get information from them because we all know that people hate that. No one wants anyone knocking at their door anymore. It's soliciting and people have signs all over their doors and mailboxes yeah. to, to not do that. Yeah. So we need to find it, our, our plan is to essentially gamify that. So find out a way that people get rewarded for providing information, because ultimately they're going to, they're going to gain from it, but we need immediate gain for them, not just sort of the lifeline of the, of the building but they need some instant gratification that they can provide us information and they get something right away. We don't have the answer for that, but I know that we're going to end up gamifying some kind of technology.
0: So can you give us a glimpse into what that would look like? No. (laughs) Fair enough. So you set out to build a completely different business model and out of necessity, like you said, why do you think so many architectural firms struggle? And Do you have any specific ideas as to why they struggle? I think they're trapped in a world that they were taught to live in. And you mentioned earlier that you were looking at different industries uh, to learn from them. Can you give us a couple examples?
1: Yeah, I think the, I mean, technology and the tech industry in terms of a business model is very interesting to me. We, We haven't taken investment and I hope, to never actually take investment within the company, we'll, we raise money for each project. But technology is interesting in the way it creates culture and attracts people to a vision, right? And we have to do that in architecture, especially when you're changing an architecture business. We don't have any built pro- oh, We have a couple of built projects. We don't really show them, but you know, we will. We're in construction now on a couple of large ones, and we'll be in construction on three to four additional ones in the start of 2018. So there'll be. You know by the end of 2018 we'll probably be in construction on at least 10 projects but i started this five years ago right and i've had many employees come through here we have 14 or 15 clients without any built work to show them so people have to believe in a vision they have to believe in the narrative and the story and everything that lies beneath that right so you ask me where i come from that's part of the narrative as you know that's why you ask the question But people have to believe not just in the narrative, they have to believe in you and everything about you, and that you're going to be able to pull it off without any track record. And I think that falls back a little bit on being able to prove that the industry is broken, right? And that it it needs some kind of revolution. And we've been able to lay that out now on some kind of roadmap of what's wrong with it and how we're going to change it, and what's the outcome when we change it. And there's been enough people that have complained about the architecture industry for long enough that it's sort of easy now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can lay out the narrative and yeah, you know, the project center construction definitely help with the narrative now. If I gave you this narrative five years ago when I was sitting alone in the corner of my studio trying to start a business, no one would believe it. Mm-hmm. It's a little easier now that we've got our clientele and the, and the staff that we have the recognition and some kind of idea of who we are, it helps.
0: So how do you convince a client to hire you without the built work behind to back you up? Well,
1: I've done a pretty good job so far. That's for sure. I don't know actually how I've done it, but it's, it's mostly relationships, persistence and relationships. All of our early like, clients came from just pure persistence and you'll get a thousand no's before they open the door but when they open the door you know it's going to work because you've worked hard enough for it and they know you've worked hard enough for it and that's all they wanted to see because if you can prove you work hard enough for one meeting for that thing alone I think there's some belief that you'll work your ass off for everything that you work on with
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can definitely relate to that. Uh, Yeah. You get rejected 10, 20 times and all of a sudden the door opens. And you realize it's worth it. Oh yeah. No, you don't have to convince me. So you've kind of explained how creative you've been into establishing a new business model for architecture in the design itself. What is the importance of creativity and what's your creative process like?
1: So the underlying design principle within the company is to not have one. Uh, architects typically have a very understandable aesthetic, right? There's a common aesthetic that runs through the studio for 30, 40 years. You know, Frank Gehry's work, We know deeds, we even know BRK's now it's boxes stacked on boxes, right? He hasn't even been around that long, but he's guys, it's a one trick pony that he's done very well. And I, but his, his business is smart. And I commend them on, on the business model more than anything. But in terms of our design strategy, and I think the way that we work, we try to give people and everybody in the office a chance to bounce ideas off of each other, right? Everyone's here for a reason and everybody's got great ideas. And if we can throw them on the wall and everybody can poke holes at them and we can go at it that way, it we've I think proven that there's just much more value on the design end than any design aesthetic. So it's very odd, I think, for people that have been in the industry for a while to see it work this way, and we're evolving for sure. But when we get a new project in, we have, everybody gets half a day to come up with ideas. We pin them up on the wall and we talk about it. And we narrow them down to three. Those three people get another day or two to you know develop them a little bit further. And then we have a final review and everyone votes. It's the most democratic design studio I've ever seen, but it works because by the end of that process, we've poked so many holes at the thing that we already have a concept. So it would normally take, you know, four to six weeks. We do in five days.
0: So it's not about you coming up with an idea and then having people work it out. I don't even design I don't even come up with ideas anymore.
1: I mean, I do, I always have ideas and I'll sketch them if, if we don't get somewhere. It's much more exciting for me to see 20 ideas on the wall and those evolve into something else, it's pretty awesome to see what people come up with when you give them a little bit of information and some freedom.
0: It's certainly contrary to your typical design studio, so that's a very interesting approach. And that gives us a glimpse into your company culture. Can you elaborate on what that culture is like?
1: Ever-changing uh the culture and the studio and the space in which our studio is in is always a a big thing for us you know the first studio was in my apartment 550 or 30 square foot apartment in the middle of los angeles by myself and i I think i shoved five or six people in there in our first competition and then moved downtown to a shared office with our structural engineer in the heart of los angeles before it was the heart of los angeles (laughs) before Whole Foods and all that stuff was Mm -hmm. there. And then took over a 5,000 square foot building uh, at a storefront at one of the busiest intersections in Los Angeles. And I, I sort of bring this up because it is part of the culture. It's always been a big thing for me to be able to put our studio on the street front and actually have street presence because you typically see architects hide back and don't have much of a relationship with people walking by or with the community. Our goal was to invite them in. And while we ended up, Having a lot of homeless people come in, we also made friends with them and we also were able to feed them and help them and have relationships with them now. And they're great people. I mean, they've had to move around because that was a development at that site and our building just got torn down two days ago, actually, mm-hmm. in that first one. But it, we, you know, it's part of it that we want to move into these areas and use the culture and the studio and the physical space to change an area for a small period of time. It's not a, a forever thing. We know it's an ever changing city and environment. But if we can use our studio and the culture within that studio to actually communicate and interact with the community around us and change it in a better way, we should all be doing that. And the fact that architects have really sat back and hid in towers or off the street is, is a failure to me. So you know, we, now we just purchased another building not too far up from our old one. And it's going to be a showroom and a place where people can come in and it's next to another mini skate row, right? So we're moving sort of where these people are and we need, we need to figure out a way to, I think, communicate with them and interact and figure out solutions for that problem as well. And we can do that if we invite them in, which is a very odd idea because we have tons of technology and, and we're inviting these people who don't have much of anything, but ideas which can be quite valuable into our studio
0: well as you know i'm a firm believer in empathy and you doing that is a demonstration of your ability to listen to people that may not be obvious as a source of feedback so i find that fascinating is it correct to describe that the very physical location to say that the very physical location of your building is um almost a manifestation of your culture, and that you're using that as a way to uh, enter a, any given community?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's why, you know, when someone answers a question about culture, they typically don't talk about physical building, but it's such a huge part of what we're developing here that it, I have to talk about it,
0: because it's always
1: been part of the business model in that we're, we're not hiding. Right? We, we have storefront glass on the windows. We can come in whenever you want. The door is always open. And the culture within the studio evolves from that a little bit. Right? And it will forever change as we hire more people and we take on more projects. It's going to keep changing. But as long as the culture is about innovation, uniqueness, and really progressive behavior and thought, that's really all that matters to me. As long as we keep pushing and we challenge ourselves and each other, I think our business will be very, very successful and hopefully other people can then copy that culture and business model and push us to change. So the culture is, is
0: innovation. That's essentially it. And so if we go back to the idea of your physical studio being a foot into a community, what do you see your business looking like uh, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years?
1: Yeah, I think we'll have we'll continue moving physical locations. And I think the, the other principals here recently realized that. So we all, they always think, all right, well, now we bought a building, now we're gonna stay there for a while. But, you know, in the last couple months, I think they realized that that's, that's not how we operate. So whether we have mini satellite offices around Los Angeles, which is probably what's gonna happen. And so maybe the interior design division is in one and the product division is in the other. and the, master planning is in another place of LA. That way we can start spotting if this and it's crazy, right? It's not per, potentially not the most efficient if you looked at it from the outside, but maybe it is because one, it's a grounding effort, right? We get to we get signage, we get communication with different neighborhoods and we get to understand them because we're eating lunch with the people who live there. We're walking the streets with them. We make eye contact with those people. Whereas right now we don't get to do that in Venice because we don't have an office there. So I think it's a huge opportunity for us to create little satellite offices, not just in LA, but obviously everywhere around the world as, as quickly as we can and so, own the real estate, obviously. Yeah.
0: So what have you learned from the people that have walked in your office so far? And you mentioned homeless people, having lunch with them. How, how has that changed your perspective on what you're doing and what are you taking into the business from that, from those interactions? Mm-hmm. I think forgiveness, maybe, and just
1: understanding that while we're working on some large, crazy projects, there's a much more human scale to things. That when someone is sleeping in a tent next to your office, which used to be a dump site until we moved in and then we cleaned all the trash site, and they were so thankful that we cleaned it up. And then he ended up cleaning up the whole corner and cleaned up the corner all the time. And there was this just common respect, I guess, where he knew he could come in for water or coffee because he's taking care of the neighborhood and he's watching out for us. So I guess it's this, it's almost this idea of scale and and human nature and behavior that I think I was able to understand a little bit more or at least absorb. I don't know if I totally understand it, but you know, when you're working on a 700,000 square foot project, it's hard to understand how one person uses one office. But when someone comes in living in 20 square feet outside, it sort of just, I think, shifts the perspective on how we design, whether it be a faucet or a
0: master plan building. That's a very abstract answer, but. So how do you reconcile that with the need uh, to make money and be profitable and design buildings or objects that will make you successful as a business? Has that changed your perspective in that particular, from that perspective? No, because if we don't
1: make money and, and create a business model that generates more revenue than other architecture studios. And we're not doing anything better than anyone else. And we can't, you know, if we're struggling like every other architecture studio typically does, there's, there's no point in us struggling alongside. If we're able to generate a business model that generates much more revenue and donate that money or put that money into research, into homeless shelters or whatever it may be, that's the idea, but we need to create a, a think tank that's actually generating ideas and generating money. Right now, money is the thing that allows people and ideas to come together, right? That's how tech companies operate. And I, while there's a lot of things wrong, a lot of things wrong with the tech industry, they are able to absorb a lot of money and they've come up with a lot of great innovations in the world today, and that's what we want to do. We want to go in that direction so that we can create positive change. So are you talking about giving back then? Of course. Okay. But not just giving, not just throwing money back at people, mm-hmm. but but putting money into, and yes, well, donating money. I and mean, it's sort of, that's like an inherent thing, I think, in people. Well, some people, like, <laughs> some people don't do that, but it's another conversation. Mm-hmm but it's more about generating enough revenue to look at what that revenue can do outside of architecture. Right. But without that, we have to just keep the doors open. So if we're just producing architecture for the sake of architecture, which is good in itself, it's only, it's only fueling a sort of dwindling fire of the architecture industry that can allow us to keep generating architecture. But, In order to generate ideas that are outside of architecture, but still related to cities and human behavior and all this stuff, we we needed to extend that scope to create other verticals, to create other revenue streams.
0: So is it correct to say that you're trying to change society and not just the architecture industry? We're trying to better the way that people
1: live every day. Society will change every single second without any of us doing anything.
0: Yeah. So better it. And, um, so outside of what you do, which is architecture and design and everything that we've talked about, what other influence could you have on society at large, or you see yourself having in the future? I don't know yet. Fair enough. Let's go back to creativity a little bit. And, um, can you tell us where you find your inspiration? typically sitting in front of a fire that's where most of my most of my ideas come
1: from i'll mm-hmm. stare at a fire for three hours and, and thoughts just flow through
0: does that mean you have a fireplace at home i do outside it has to I be it has it has to be outside well in los angeles so, yeah you, you fool not to do that yeah, yeah um do you have any mentors or people you look up to
1: yeah i mean my father I definitely look up to him. I mean, he's a very humble and quiet man, but he's dedicated his life to to his patients and to research and pediatrics and never asked for anything, never wants recognition. Um, I would like to leave some kind of legacy like that that has changed an industry in order for everyone in it and around it to be able to do better things. Um, you know, we also have a board of advisors, which I think have been brought together because they're close friends, but also because they all do amazing things, and all very different things. And those, those four guys are still doing just amazing, unique, game-changing, world-changing things every single day. So it's very interesting to be able to talk to them as much as, as, much as I do and call them up and throw these crazy ideas at them.
0: So what kind of relationship do you have with those guys? You were friends. I mean, it
1: was those that advisory board was put together because I became friends with these guys first and foremost, and they just happened to be
0: brilliant. So is it uh, an advisory board in that traditional business sense? Or is it more of a creative thing or you just call them up when you need something? Or, You know, the
1: last couple of years, it's been a very loose board. And now as of the last few months, we have a meeting twice a year where we will be getting together and talking about MRAD, but talking about more so trends in global markets and technology and anything that anybody wants to talk about.
0: And that gives you, I guess, fodder to come up with new ideas and new projects. Yeah, and
1: test out, test out big ideas that I've been thinking about and they've been thinking about. And, you know, our business is based on cross disciplinary ideas. It's not most of them don't come from architecture right architecture business model is really completely broken there's little i copy up from it but i look at it to know what not to do
0: so it may appear to some of our listeners that you're jaded i don't think you are but um in the strictly strictly in the architectural world what uh, are there designers you admire or architects that you really look up to yeah
1: i think uh snowhead as a company is Done some amazing things, right? They've extended into many other design fields, like designing currencies. Their architecture is beautiful. I think they're sincere guys and really push design. Uh, obviously, I mean, I speak about him a lot. BRK's business model uh, is one I copied for a while. He was concerned with business, and he created a narrative to help sell that business and his whole pitch was being able to create these buildings for cheaper than anybody else not many people know that so it wasn't about design for him
0: it was about selling developers on saving them money if i remember correctly that's how he uh, he talked about the mountain dwelling at least in the early early years it's true that we don't really hear that much anymore um and so yeah. That's a very interesting point. Um, and strictly in a design sense, any particular influences or is it similar to how you see your business and you don't want to pigeonhole yourself into? No, I can
1: appreciate design
0: hundred percent. I mean, I think
1: some of big projects are interesting. I think they lack a lot of human scale, but I think visually aesthetically they're quite beautiful. Uh, you know Snowhead is just uh, I think they're phenomenal designers I don't think anyone can design better than them right now. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Zaha pushed the boundary and form and you know I can, can't do anything but commend her for for making that happen. Uh, I also think you know I'm going through sort of hit, the, the largest hit list here but Frank Gehry's uh, business model in tune with his narrative and design uh, it was a very interesting mix throughout his career. right He designed a lot of projects that were not quote unquote Frank Gehry, uh, but he did it to survive and to keep his office open. We don't do that. we don't design buildings that we don't believe in now and maybe he believed in them, but when he talks about those now, it doesn't really sound like he did. Mm-hmm. so we don't do pro- we don't spend time on projects that uh, don't better people's lives, essentially, or we don't believe in wholeheartedly that they are different and unique and will do something for society.
0: So does that mean you would run away from a client that would not let you what you need to do?
1: Yeah, but it's not letting us do what we need to do. It's having a conversation about what we believe in. So it's not about us being stubborn designers. It's about laying out a framework of what we think the community needs, and if they look at that and look at the tool set or those ingredients and say, no, we think the ingredients from 30 years ago are, this is what we're going to do because we've made money on it. And that results in a cake that looks like a box. Then yeah, we'll walk away. We've turned down a lot of clients already for that reason. Probably maybe that's stupid, but it's worked for us because now we have a, a business that people look at for better design. It's not just crazy design. It's not just design for design, but it's designed with ingredients that have been put together through thought and research.
0: Well, it sounds like you know where you want to go and you're very deliberate about the kind of projects you take, you're taking on, which has been proven in many industries to be one of the paths to success. So I think it's it's very commendable that you're able to do that. Um, and, you know, I think we just got to wait to see what you guys produce. The way you describe your business to the world, you say that you're a designer of bespoke solutions to universal problems. What are those universal problems you're, you're talking about? So I can speak
1: specifically if I might about one project where that really came from. So we submitted a... For a competition entry for the sustainable art installation on Fresh Coast Park Mm -hmm. in Staten Island in New York, several years ago, four years ago, won a a prize for it. And the design came from the Windrose diagram, which is essentially showing where predominant wind flows are in the area. And the diagram's just sort of an interesting star shape. We implanted that on the area where the Windrose diagram, and then the idea was to figure out how to create electricity. So we essentially lifted up areas where there are more predominant wind flow and inserted multiple wind turbines into that lift. And so, and then you, you know, generated enough electricity for I think it was 256 or seven households in the area. But the principle behind the project is that data was driving that, right? So if we're able to create sustainable solutions such as generating electricity with land art or with form or anything like that. And we can gather wind data in Israel or wind data in Brazil. We can take that wind rose diagram, we can put that same thing on that site, we can do the exact same thing. It'll look a little bit different because the wind data is different, but it's still generating the similar outcome. It's still generating electricity, but it's the same principle, it's the same idea. So if there's a way for us to create electricity with one idea, with data, with this very sort of interesting, unique, formal behavior and create a connection with the neighboring community with it. So it's not just blocked off, but you can actually go up in between the wind turbines and look back at the city. And so there's this whole valley and hill, Mm -hmm. you know, terrain that you can walk through. Uh, That's that's what I'm talking about when we say bespoke solutions to universal problems. So the universal problem is. Well, not enough power, not enough water, right? There's a bunch of other ones. But how do we look at thing have solutions that are one solution, but adjust very easily to the terrain or the location or the data that we get from each area?
0: So the bespoke part is adapting to each site, but using a similar design principle.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right? Got it. That makes perfect sense. Um, I think we're getting close to the end. I had a couple more questions that are more um, higher level to kind of see how you see yourself and what you, you want to do in the future. What would be the legacy you'd like to leave? Like if you picture yourself, I know it may sound a bit grim, but it doesn't have to be if you picture yourself on your deathbed and you look back at what you've accomplished as a business owner or architect or however you want to describe yourself, what would that look like? I think probably the guy that created a new industry. It's a lofty goal. Do you have any specifics that, in mind? or it's, That's not good enough for you? <laughs> it's very general.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I just think architecture has fallen apart into such a bad place that I want to create a place for designers to be able to do what they're great at and...
0: That's it. So are you talking about enabling other people's potential? No, I think the,
1: I think it's just about giving them a place to feel comfortable where they don't have to do something that they don't want to do or that they're not good at or that is not going to help them do what they're great at. So it's more about giving them a place to be designers and design a better world. But right now people are too stuck in having to pay rent and pay for food and do all these things on a day-to-day basis that are preventing them actually from doing what they should be doing. And probably if they had the time to design and
0: think, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. That makes a lot of sense. It's been great. I have one more question for you, and that's an an easy one. Uh, Stones or Beatles? Stones. All right. Well, it's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi again, everyone. Arno here. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Remember that you can find us online at rvltr.studio or on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore TO. Until next time, salut!